Welcome to the International Civil Society Centre's Futures and Innovation podcast. I'm Vicky Tung, the Programme Manager for Futures and Innovation here at the Centre. This episode is the second in a mini-series around our upcoming annual Scanning the Horizon meetings. Scanning the Horizon is a multi-stakeholder platform for horizon scanning and strategic thinking. It gives organisations the edge when it comes to anticipating change and making strategic decisions. Throughout 2020, this platform of international civil society sector strategists will be exploring the interconnectedness of global trends, how major forces might interact and influence each other to bring about different potential futures which could profoundly transform our work. Today I'm joined by Irena Hout and Filippo Artuso from the research and publishing team at Oxfam GB, who recently completed a year-long study mapping what the existing literature agrees on in terms of global megatrends. Irena and Filippo, it's great to have the chance to talk to you about this piece of work. Hi Vicky, it's great to speak to you. Hello Vicky, it's wonderful to be here and what a great opportunity to talk about megatrends when the world is living through one at this very moment. Indeed, indeed. So this podcast references your recent Oxfam discussion paper called Global Megatrends, Mapping the Forces that Affect Us All. There's a link to this in the podcast's description. So guys, in a nutshell, could you tell us what, this, what you've done with this paper, please? Uh, sure. In our global megatrends paper, we try to identify what are the large transformative forces that affect us all. Um, to do so, we selected studies on the subject from 22 sources, from consultancy agency, uh, international organizations, think tanks and academia. Uh, we wanted to find out what we call in the paper the, the consensus between the sources. And this is a sort of meta-analysis for um, the expert in the sector. Uh, what came out of it is a research that is a sort of a map, uh, a structure, structured representation of these trends uh, that we hope can reassure people in their assumptions, but also challenge them and possibly uncover those issues uh, or forces uh, that were not in the radar before. So uh, the four clusters that we found uh, emerged through through our look at at, at the sources were uh, technology, environment, power, and demography. And in technology, uh, we really are talking about um, how technological innovation and hi- and hyperconnectivity are resh- reshaping the way everybody walks, talks, works, relates, and connects. Um, and the the trade-offs in that. Uh, Demography was very much about the sources mentioning how societies are being shaped by the age and location and movement between locations of people that's impacting on, of course, all the other trends. And within that, demography, urbanization, migration, and a wide range of health challenges. The third one on environment was really related to climate change and resource scarcity. Uh, I think we couldn't be forgiven to think uh, before COVID in any case that climate change is the only environmental challenge there is, but the sources really pointed out that there's a wide range of resource scarcity that the world uh, has to deal with um, because of the structure of our extractive economy. And then finally, power is the fourth cluster which describes a wide range of different socioeconomic and political trends, such as multipolarity, um, uh, so moving away from a uh, Europe, North America-driven global economy, um, growing and and varying uh, 
types of economic inequality, crumbling social cohesion, um, distrust of institutions and conflict. And so these were the four clusters that really came out of the discourse quite clearly. And in fact, we've seen echoed since then in other work that has come out after that. So we felt uh, quite confident that we were onto these four different clusters of uh, megatrends um, as, as a good representation of the consensus. So why did you feel the need to map the global forces that affect us all? And why as organizations do we need, need to get better at exploring these complex potential futures, perhaps now more than ever? So Oxfam, like many organizations, invests quite a lot in knowing what the effect is of its work. That's, I suppose, what you would call the evaluative capacity. And um, it's often a mandatory part of contract contracts and it looks retrospectively it looks in the in the rearview mirror at whether outcomes have been achieved um, and in fact I've done spent a lot of my my life doing that because it is of course incredibly important to know whether what you plan uh, should should be the change is actually the change however um, the the past is only there's a limit to what uh, looking at the past will actually show you about the future. And uh, there's now this acronym, VUCA times, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous times that we're living in. And history isn't always such a good guide for that. So we also need to have capacities and discussions and investment in something that uh, some folk in the, the kind of complexity world call anticipatory awareness. So what are you, what are you sensing might be emerging linked perhaps to trends from the past, that you need to be preparing and gearing yourself up to be able to respond to. So we felt that in Oxfam, we, we actually really lacked that. We had a, a project called, um, uh, what do we need to know about how to end poverty? And we had looked at various types of retrospective studies on poverty um, and on inequality, but it, uh, but somebody said, one of our colleagues said, but wait a sec, this isn't necessarily going to help us going forward. So we thought, okay, well, what is the world saying about uh, what, what we're, what's looming, so to speak? Um, and then, so we started to map um, all these different uh, sources that we, we found, and that in itself was quite complicated. And uh, Filippo will talk, talk, to us, um, talk to us about that. Um, and it showed us that um, that there's quite a tendency to look at either national or regional or even sector-specific silos. But it it was it was much more complicated, um, much more uh, just much more difficult to actually find sources that looked at the the big global system in terms of forces that affect everybody. So we define these forces as very large, transformative, global. Uh, forces that define the future by having a very far-reaching impact on business, economies, industries, societies, and individuals. And um, even three months ago, I remember colleagues were kind of furrowing their brows when we talked about these, but of course now everybody understands very much we're living what such a global force um, might actually be. So that was kind of the background to why we started to map what uh, kind of consensus might be emerging about what's looming. 
And in terms of the evidence base and the kind of 22 recent scans from the range of organisations you've you've described, um, who is it that's really producing and publishing this kind of analysis and um, who's missing from that? Well, as, as Filippo said, the ones that we felt we, we noticed actually really were describing the global mega trends were those that were largely based in uh, Europe or the US or were very large um, global go, globally operating um, institutions, for example, some of the UN um, agencies. And so these are the kinds of organizations that have the money, the time, um, have given themselves the mandate, um, have got the capacity to do that kind of, uh, I guess, trawling and, and thinking about these types of phenomena. And the voices that um, are missing are um, CSO voices, um, uh, often very much more hyper-local, almost by definition, right? Because by focusing on global megatrends, you are excluding, we were excluding regional um, and national trends. And so I think you've, in, in looking at this kind of work, you've got to be very aware about what you're excluding and what you're not seeing almost as a methodological offshoot um, of decisions that we made. So the voices that really are not there um, were, the, were largely those that were more critical about some of these phenomena from uh, civil society. So, Filippo, could you talk about some of the pain points which Irena just mentioned that you encountered during your mapping of how the global trends are being analysed in the external literature? Sure, thanks, Vicky. Um, there were indeed a few pain points in our research, uh, and I would say they were mainly divided in two areas. Uh, two uh, main problems we had with methodology and uh, another one with results. Uh, considering that our goal was to identify megatrends, and in particular, what are those trends that uh, most of the sources would mention, uh, the first problem we faced was that most of these sources would be mm, qualitative in nature, um, making the trends difficult to identify and quantify. Uh, this was even more difficult considering that sources uh, would talk about trends in different ways, sometimes in uh, interconnected ways. To make an example, one source would talk about hyperconnectivity. Um, this is the extremely rapid increase of connectivity through technological means. And then a different one would talk about how uh, there is an increase in interconnection um, through social media and how this is changing society. Obviously, there is a common denominator between these two examples, uh, but um, it is not quantifiable. So our solution was to assign different labels for these trends. Um, tagging the first with hyperconnectivity and the second with uh, social media, for example. Um, and this way we were able to break down pieces of text uh, and quantify the presence of trends inside this. Uh, once we solved this first problem, we faced a second one that is, that is quite the opposite. Um, so if on one side we wanted to break down the narratives and quantify the trends on their own, on the other, we didn't want to lose the interconnection between trends and the nuance. So this is why we decided to structure them in a more uh, logical way into bigger clusters and to map them and create a map that is easier to navigate and explore. Um, and we did, we redesigned the narratives. 
this cluster are main categories that help our uh, help us organizing our minds around trends like changing work or climate change and and others reconnecting to what Irene just said about uncertainty we wanted to make a real effort to reduce uncertainty uh, and we tried to do so by reducing complexity uh, so what we obtained was a quite structured map of megatrends uh, that we believe are important to consider when when thinking about the future so in presenting our results we tried to keep our mapping and our analysis as true as possible to the sources we were investigating of course as part of Oxfam we wanted to produce something that could be useful for the organization um, and possibly for the INGO sector. But we wanted to avoid cherry picking trends for the sector. Um, we wanted to allow um, whoever will use our tool to identify possible trends that are outside of their scope um, or the usual scope, so outliers. Um, but we do have critical minds and particularly because we work with the objective of eradicating poverty, uh, we couldn't refrain from including uh, a critical comment, a personal comment of biases and gaps that we found in the narrative and throughout the sources. We want to highlight that, sure, uh, data are data, but it is the interpretation we make of them and the narrative we adopt that changes the prediction we make. And overlooking the effects of these trends can really change our perception of problems and and eventually our strategy to address them. So speaking of the gaps in the literature and what you've just mentioned around narratives, in the paper you do highlight what is missing or where the wider popular narratives around the trends differ from your analysis. There's also a lot of wider discussion right now about why many of the warning signs around mass pandemic outbreaks were missed. So what particularly stood out for you here and why? Well, um, as we find ourselves in a lockdown due to a global pandemic, I would start from this. Um, almost none of the sources we use would predict a pandemic. To be completely fair, the risk of a disease outbreak came out in a couple of publications and we did include it in our, uh, in our narrative and in our analysis. Um, we said quite explicitly that this was to be expected. But if we look at the number of, of the sources that predicted this, only it's, it's really a few um, and it's quite surprising considering uh, that we're now living it. Um, it's surprising how the risk of this pandemic was underestimated. We gave it some thought and there might be a reason for this. We had a cutoff in the selection of sources to only three years back. It is totally possible that um, megatrends publication from, from before this time uh, would actually include um, more reference to this pandemic, particularly if they were written during the years of, of the swine flu, SARS or MERS. So it might be that the sampling in, um, influenced our results. But going into more general gaps, the main gap we identified uh, throughout the literature was the, a lack of gender differentiated impact of the trends in different narratives. To make an example, many sources talk about uh, the digital divide. This is the inequality in access to digital means. And the sources will call for, for a reduction of the divide. But not many would talk about the gender digital divide that is a further obstacle for uh, women uh, in accessing the internet due to economic, social, and cultural factors. And the same is true for migration. Migrant women are, are usually at, at, at an increased risk of exploitation or abuse. 
in both uh, these occasions, we noticed how the trends were identified, uh, but there was a, a real missed opportunity to talk about the persons that the trends uh, impact the most. Perhaps uh, this lack of attention might be related to something else we noticed. We noticed that uh, many sources had a bit of a bias um, in that they would take a northern or uh, high-income country's point of view. Some would talk about migration in terms of the European migrant crisis, apparently forgetting that the great majority of migration is, is not really European. Uh, it's actually regional, and 85% of, of all the refugees are hosted in uh, developing countries, according to the UN. Finally, we noticed a general lack of attention to civic space and civic freedoms, particularly when talking about technology. The literature would uh, identify the incredible explosion of the use of data and the risk that this might pose with regard to privacy. But sometimes uh, I feel there was something left out and this is that technology is already used as, as a surveillance tool in, in many authoritarian regimes. Uh, this is already happening in China. And the literature also missed out on mentioning the incredible power we are amassing uh, in the hands of a few tech corporations and how, how this raises very relevant question about responsibility in controlling the tools they offer. Thanks, Filippo. I think it's quite heartening, um, actually, given that you found these gaps, that we are seeing some really good uh, analysis, both uh, gender differentiated, um, but also about some of the um, digital rights and digital freedoms and surveillance um, analyses around um, the kind of COVID-19 responses. Uh, and developments. So uh, it's, 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 it's good to see those aspects coming out much more explicitly in what's happening at the moment. You're listening to the International Civil Society Centre's Futures and Innovation podcast. Our Scanning the Horizon community has been making megatrends more manageable since 2015. Join us today. You highlight a number of recommendations for organisations to be fitter for the future. And one of them is how we should use a systems approach to horizon scanning, because the real effects will be felt at the interactions between these trends, uh, many of which we're seeing at the moment in the kind of post-COVID-19 discussions. This is something that we're also looking at with the scanning horizon community of future strategists from the uh, international CSOs this year. What are the new kinds of conversation that you're now having with Oxfam, which are being generated by this kind of complex analysis that you've been doing? When we first uh, presented some of this work, which is a couple of months ago, um, I think one of the things that stood out was the the importance to, of being reminded of uh, the bleakness of the future. And it sounds very it sounds a bit depressing to say that, but we were really struck when we when we read the the mega trends that it really they did paint a rather bleak picture. And I think that as NGOs and CSOs, even though we're confronted with, you know, the huge injustices, we're almost optimists by nature, many of us. And um, I'm not sure that's always warranted. So by looking at a, um, by, by taking a bit of a broader look at at the, the future as saying, as something that isn't probably quite as as uh, changeable as malleable as we think it is it does it, it does create the space to say well what what if 
it's what if it starts to to be different than we would like it to be it gets you into that it allows you to go beyond the the what we want it to become into the what is more likely so i think that's one new type of conversation that um, I've certainly started hearing is a little bit more of, it's more a bit of a reality check, um, saying we, the discussions about, um, well, you know, technology, let's take the technology example, there tends to be a little bit of digital optimism sometimes uh, when you think about the, the digital economy or digital activism, when in fact uh, there's also a lot of transgression and um, invasion of privacy um, and people's rights through um, this technological uh, kind of like explosion that Filippo was referring to. So um, I think one of those conversations um, is really that more grounded, um, it might be more difficult or, or it might be more more uh, less less positive than we would like it to be but then at least that allows you a, a more grounded starting point from which to identify new options and opportunities um, I think the other thing that it did is it allows it in, it, it allowed us to start to look at combinations um, for example uh, with some of the campaigns colleagues they were looking at um, uh, when when demography and tech, de demographic trends, so you know enormous youth explosion in 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 Africa that is very you know we all know but we don't aren't necessarily aware of how does that then connect with um, technology as another trend? So so bringing the two trends together allows them to say well do they exacerbate each other or can they actually complement each other? Can you use both trends as a positive way to uh, deal more with uh, youth activism for example if in fact technology and digital um, um, explosions are also on the horizon. So it allows you to break a little bit out of your your sectoral um, your sectoral kind of lenses. Um, the other thing that it allows you, um, I think another kind of conversation that it certainly <laughs> over the, well, the, the world really has changed also very much for me. Coming back to this paper now, it's like, oh gosh, yes, that was only a few months ago. And um, we're dealing now with COVID where we're seeing all of these intersections playing out very, um, very strongly. And um, we're also being forced to take on new, new roles. So um, it's about repurposing our capacities and repurposing our resources and looking not only at the immediate, but at the, at the mid and long-term effects. So a systems perspective allows you to look at a domino effect. Um, for example, how are we going to, what are the different scenarios of dealing with uh, various degrees of shutdown of, of the economic system? So um, it, I guess it's that kind of systems thinking that's that we're hearing in Oxfam as well at the moment is saying, well, a light shutdown might look like this for these people, whereas a very heavy shutdown will have all these kinds of, of um, knock-on effects for people's livelihoods, for their ability to send money through, and this in turn will have huge uh, implications for in-country 
the ta the tax base and for for the care economy. So a, a systems approach allows you to kind of come out of your little disciplinary holes or your little team thinking into a uh, a web-based understanding of how the different phenomena are playing out. So I guess the new kinds of conversation within Oxfam are about a more, I guess it's a more humble, yeah, I would, I would say again, a more grounded, the future might not be as good as we think uh, we would like it to be, as well as that, uh, that importance of, of looking at uh, injustices and multiple poverties that are interacting with um, the kind of the demographic and, and climatic and, and private sector types of trends um, that, that we were describing in the paper. So it sounds like with these conversations, with these new conversations, it's uh, the, the value is not and the aim is not around achieving consensus. It's more about creating a kind of constructive space where everyone does come together with different views on things and actually perhaps the, the, the most interesting um, thinking is where there may be divergence in opinion. Um, do you have any kind of reaction to that? Well, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about, and this this is more to do with how we're living the current megatrend rather than anything that came out of that um, paper. It's um, you've you've got to let go of the notion that you can plan a change process, and that all you can do, I think, is identify um, a range of um, certainly experiments at the moment uh, that you can it's really it brings us fully back into complexity thinking to be honest that it's quite unclear how it's going to play out um, and that coherence is our value system uh, the principles of, for example of you know a feminist um, a feminist future or safe programming or climate justice these are these are principles and and anchor points from which you can start to nudge through different experience that are going to have to be quite context specific um, so blanket uh, solutions for even debt relief so oxfam has been talking about debt relief and we're, it's a an really really important uh, change to try and push for currently because economies are hemorrhaging money in terms of repaying repaying debt uh, when you know they need every penny to bolster their 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 health systems so um, um, but but debt relief as a generic solution is going to have to take on quite a different form in different places and so making sure that you take a general notion like that and then and then bring it back to a specific context and then fund um, or work on um, hyper-local versions uh, of of uh, of responses. I think is is one of the one of the phenomena that I'm seeing people talking about a lot more. All this analysis is great, but how can we, as a community of uh, international CSOs, use the kind of insights that you're providing us with? Well, I think that trends uh, that we identified in the mapping really help us to lift our heads above the parapet, so to speak. And um, in the paper, uh, we identify six questions that organizations can ask themselves. The first is really to say, what 
trends that are have been highlighted in the paper are not on our radar. Uh, we all have certain kinds of organizational organizational myopia uh, that we're prone to. So which ones are being ignored and should we perhaps take a bit more seriously because they will affect those priorities that we do have. So that's number one. Identify those trends that are not on your radar and figure out what to think about them. The second is to think about geography. So um, one of the, I guess in Oxfam, I noticed that we tend to have our preferred areas and we think about regions and about countries. But actually, if you look at some of the megatrends, they're inviting us to think about very different geographies where change happens. So perhaps more virtual geographies um, through the whole technolo technology and interconnectivity that's exploding, but also megacities. I think cities are increasingly, um, very large urban areas are increasingly uh, fascinating areas of experimentation with their own power that um, can uh, kind of fly under the radar of, of national politics. So that's the second one, focus on uh, different geographies, perhaps virtual ones that matter. The third is really to say, um, to think about what impacts uh, these different megatrends might have on different groups of people. So these megatrends won't play out the same and uh, for, for one and, uh, and all, and as we're seeing very clearly with COVID, what does it mean particularly for people working um, under conditions of poverty, uh, social marginalization, and that came out in the literature quite clearly, is that naming a megatrend doesn't mean you understand how it's impacting on different people. So that's the third question for NGOs. The fourth one is to figure out which opportunities and challenges um, um, do they invite you to take on. So it's where the, where the interaction of trends, where real effects uh, will be felt, um, what new options are emerging, uh, where these interactions um, are, are happening between, say, climate change and demography, um, and figuring out where they ask for a, a novel approach. The fifth one is uh, to decide actually which trends you can take on and what role to play in that. So there's so much that is going on, organizations will have to prioritize. Um, so what kind of role do you want to play in that? Are they, do you see them as positive trends that you want to uh, kind of accelerate or amplify? Or do you see them as problematic trends that you want to try and dampen and, and diffuse? And then the final question is about um, what kinds of new partnerships might this be asking uh, civil society organizations to take on? For example, city governance. Um, is that a new player that we might want to engage with rather than, say, advocacy at the national level? Um, or um, organizations working on uh, youth employment, for example, where we in, in Oxfam, for example, are p less used to play working with those kinds of organizations. So it's about reimagining partnerships, roles, and possibilities. So these six questions really are an invitation to rethink what you take for granted um, in terms of priorities and strategies. Thanks, Irena. That's really interesting. And I think it's uh, nice to have that validation that about what we're doing at the centre this year in terms of with the futures uh, community, both looking at the interaction of trends, but um, in our innovation report, we'll also be looking at um, urban inclusion.
So it's kind of nice to have those votes of confidence in what we're doing um, at a sector level this year as well. Looking at the, the now, um, what do you feel through the paper, since the paper, are the most real, most relevant or urgent what if interconnectedness of trans questions that we need to be looking at, not just as individual organisations, but as a sector? Uh, one of the issues that I that that this particular pandemic I think is is really really high, highlighting is how while while of course the virus you know hits can hit any physical body the impacts of it will be incredibly diverse depending on whether uh, wh where you are um, in the system so. Uh, we are already looking at uh, gig workers, and Filippo, you might be able to uh, kind of elaborate that. So these are people in precarious labor at the moment, of course, are hugely uh, affected by, by trends in very different ways than people in stable incomes. Um, uh, we're, we're looking a lot in Oxfam at the moment at uh, gender and what would a feminist, uh, what's a, if you take on a feminist lens or, 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 or just looking at it from a women-men perspective, you know, 70 to 80% of frontline healthcare workers are female. And so that, you know, it, it's not, it, it loses its neutrality, um, a, a mega trend like that, because who's going to be affected um, health workers, obviously, what does that mean for care at home and for their vulnerability, for their um, um, ability to, uh, to actually take time off in many cases? You're getting the intersection between socioeconomic groups and particularly um, economic inequality, I would say, and a lot of these other trends are really coming out very, very strongly for me. So if we don't look at the different um, socioeconomic groups and how they are being impacted and able to respond to each of these different trends, then we're really losing out on, on, on our core business of, of reducing poverty and trying to uh, bring people up to having a fair, fairer chance um, at a decent life. I think a very interesting question, I'm not sure it's the most important, but it's very interesting. Uh, it's, it's one uh, that has to do with coronavirus as well, uh, is what if the future of work uh, is one in which most workers are in the gig economy? Uh, now, this economy is made of mostly freelance contracts uh, that are enabled by technology and play out in, in big platforms like Uber, Deliveroo or Airbnb. Um, and wh what we know about this economy is that it's growing and the majority of workers in this economy are young people. Uh, this kind of economy is great to connect demand and supply and offers lots of flexibility. Uh, but what we're seeing is also that it creates precarious work um, in a sort of race to the bottom where workers have long hours and, and low wages. Um, and what we're seeing now with coronavirus is that uh, it's becoming even more evident that most of these workers are left without basic social protection and have nowhere to turn to in times of crisis. So I think it would be important to think about how sustainable this kind of economy is and, and what are the solutions that we can put in place so that everybody's rights is, is guaranteed. So talking about interconnectedness, you have an upcoming series on the interconnected injustices of poverty. We're really interested in the topics we'll be working on. Can you give us a couple of teasers or highlighters of what we can expect next, please? So we have a paper on um, economic inequality and how we can understand 
um, it, what is actually a very, very complex uh, set of dynamics and how they affect poverty. Um, the second one is on uh, the gendered nature of poverty. So it's about gender injustices and um, and the connection to poverty. The third is on the importance of civic and, and social freedoms um, and why they matter and what the trends are on that in relation to poverty. Uh, the fourth is all around the environmental narrative and the environmental uh, causes and relationships um, in uh, dynamics with with poverty then there is one about conflict and uh, poverty um, and then finally one which uh, matters for us in oxfam not for everybody possibly but the quite political quite the, the political conversation about how you measure poverty it isn't actually a very straightforward um objective science. There's quite a lot of assumptions and one measure of poverty won't lead you uh, to, to the same outcome as another measure. And so we have to make very conscious choices. So each of these papers basically says, what are the big, um, what are the big questions? What are the key trends? And um, what on balance are, are they showing in terms of uh, whether we're looking at a, a rosy, uh, we can look at, a, at, at the future with some hope, or whether we actually have to be a bit concerned. And uh, just as COVID, of course, hit, um, hit us, we realized we needed to add an epilogue because each of these papers invites us to think about poverty differently. Thanks so much. These are going to be really exciting contributions and hopefully we can get you back on the pod to talk through some of them as and when they come out. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. This has been a really interesting conversation and uh, hopefully the first of many. Thank you very much, Vicky, for the opportunity. Thanks for having us. Thanks to Irena and Filippo for joining me. You can find their work via Oxfam's digital repository or link to the Megatrends paper and blog in the podcast description. You can find out more about the Scanning the Horizon community and our 2020 meeting at icscentre.org forward slash our hyphen work or via the link in the description. And thanks as always to our producer, Julia Pazos. We couldn't do these episodes without you.